Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Anna Marshall, the Chief Investment Officer of the $14 billion William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and a two-time past guest on the show. This time around, we discuss Anna's recently published book, The Climb to Investment Excellence. It's an outstanding, thorough guide for any leader overseeing a pool of institutional capital. But don't take my word for it. The book jacket has praise from perhaps the best list of investment luminaries to ever adorn a cover. Seth Carman from Baupost, Sir Christopher Hahn from TCI, Paul Singer from Elliott, Doug Leone from Sequoia, Lei Zhang from Hill House, and Mark Andreessen from A16Z. Our conversation offers a walkthrough of the mountain investors must climb to reach their summit, following the metaphors of identifying the goal, preparing to embark or establishing governance, getting started or setting the investment strategy, working up the mountain or manager selection, and reaching the summit. Before we get going, my daughter Skylar is taking over the mic for this week's Spread the Word. I've just started my second semester of my senior year of high school. You might think that that's a time to kick back and relax, and it is. 
So while I slack off, have some fun, and don't tell my dad about it, I'd suggest you keep listening and do tell a friend about the show. Thanks so much for spreading the word about Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Anna Marshall. Anna, great to see you. Great to see you too. I'm so excited. Why don't you walk me through how you came about writing this book? I wanted to share 37 years of experience in one pan book to provide how to do this in a practical sense for everyone involved in generating investment returns, especially those on the GP and the LP side that are doing this for compounding charitable assets. Because if this book can help improve returns by 20 basis points per year, the amount of additional wealth we can compound to then solve the challenges in the world is tremendous. So the book was a book that I wrote at the urging of the board and really my investment committee chair who felt that after years and years of being at the Hewlett Foundation, that there were a lot of things that other organizations could learn. And at the same time, I was teaching the class at Stanford that more or less follows the line of the book. And they're like, you already have most of the material done for your class and you have all of this knowledge to share. Why not share it and sit down and write a book? So that's how it came about. And how about this analogy to climbing? The analogy to climbing was just, I wanted something that didn't sound like a textbook. I was really trying to figure out what is the closest extreme sport to what we do. Because to do this in an excellent way, you have to be extreme at it. Anyone thinking that this is not a 24-7 thing is deluding themselves. I started reading books by climbers. And one of the things is everyone thinks they're crazy. They're really, really (laughs) extreme climbers. You read their stories. Technique isn't enough. Planning isn't enough. Equipment isn't enough. You have to really know how to adapt yourself to the mountain. And it just sounded exactly like what managing portfolios is. When you manage a portfolio, whether it's managing a direct portfolio the way I did for the first 18 years, which is you can know your companies, you can know the markets, you can think you've got the legal docs set, you can think you know it all, and something hits you from behind and just destroys you. Same thing happens in this side of the street. I thought it was a great analogy to how you have to plan But at the end of the day, you have to adapt and really be trusting of your team. So just to be clear, are you a climber? I hike avidly. I do day (laughs) hikes. I do not cocoon myself on the rocks. I tried bouldering and rock climbing. It requires really strong fingers that I don't have. (laughs) So before we dive into the climb itself, what do you take away as some of the key themes that go across the book? I think the key themes are, this is definitely a group activity. This is not a solo climbing activity. Managing money well requires you to have people that can take the lead, that have different techniques and skills than you do, and people you really trust. And I think that's evident from the beginning of the book in the governance and how you form a team, all the way to getting to the top of the mountain. You can't just rejoice and jump up and down at the mountain. You got to get yourself down safely. And that requires a team. A lot of people think that they get it all done by themselves, whether you're a hedge fund manager or you're an allocator. You really don't. It really does depend upon the relationships you have. So let's walk through this journey. Where do we start? Well, we start at the bottom of the mountain, which is trying to figure out what mountain you want to climb. Not everybody has to climb the same mountain. I think when pioneering portfolio management came out, it seemed like, okay, there's this mountain to climb. Everybody does it like Yale. And then over the course of the last 15, 20 years, we've had so much more money run into this endowment model, yet every institution or family office is very, very different from each other and has different needs. And so I think the first thing is distinguish what mountain you're climbing. And to do that effectively, you have to have really honest discussions with your board, your investment committee, really understand the needs of the organization, know what mountain you're climbing, what team do you have to develop? And then from a board perspective, what kind of CIO do you need to climb that mountain? You might need a very different CIO to climb one mountain than you do another. And so I think too many people try to run the sexy part of the job is manager selection. 
But there's so much that has to be done beforehand. And if you just skip to manager selection, it's highly probable you could fall off the mountain. How did those conversations take place? Because most of these pools aren't new. They've been around. Maybe there's a new leader. Maybe there's a new board. Just curious, how do institutions get there? You'd be amazed. I always say, oh, these institutions have been around forever. Yes, some institutions have been around forever. But there is a lot of capital that is new money that haven't had these conversations that just show up one day and it's like, oh, we have this endowment. Let's just get an outsized team. Maybe if you're under a billion, you hire an OCIO solution. But once you're over a billion, you're like, oh, let's just hire a team and let's just move forward. And you have to stop and be like, okay, are we an institution that gets inflows? Are we an institution that is really disciplined about our outflows? Are we an institution that has a very demanding operating budget and therefore we have to make sure because then you have to run a portfolio completely differently. And so you have to hire a CIO that's suited for that. If you hire a CIO who wants to come in and do exactly the same thing they did at their old job without asking the questions, at some point that breaks. How long do you think it takes for an organization to start to solidify which mountain they want to climb? It depends upon how institutional it is. So I would say if it's a family office or a foundation where the family members are still very active in the world and are still contributing money and they still feel like it's their foundation, it hasn't institutionalized per se, I would say that it usually takes maybe a decade, Mm -hmm. which is good because a decade gives you time to have at least one crisis. So you're going to have a tough conversation in at least the first decade. And you also can get a sense of the pace at which money would be contributed to the new foundation or the pace of what that family office is really going to do. If you're an institution that already has had perhaps a smaller endowment and they get a big gift, it's as if you start over. Because once you have a transformative gift, the organization starts dreaming bigger. If it's, let's say, a college now you're building dorms and you're building stadiums, the needs are going to change. And you have to just be really honest. What is it we're aiming for here? If that is what you're aiming for, amazing. Our jobs as CIOs and as investment teams is to be able to support the needs of the organizations that hire us. It's not how much money can I amass and then return. And sometimes we forget that. I'm highly competitive. Sometimes I'm like, no, don't spend please don't spend money. And I'm like, wait, no, stop. That is actually why I'm here. I am here to (laughs) compound money so you can spend it and do good in the world. It's human. But I do think that there's an evolution as those organizations are formed. And then presumably that gets encapsulated in some type of investment policy statement. It does. And so it's not unusual for investment policy statements to adapt and be changed in the first decade. But once you're over that first decade, your investment policy is pretty set. Okay. So now we're in good shape. We understand what mountain we're on and we got to get going. What comes next? So then you have to figure out what are the skills needed to get a team up that mountain and get that objective. So as a board, when they hire the headhunter to find the person, it's like, this is the mountain we're climbing. Be very clear. It might be the return maximization one. It might be the risk adjusted one. It might be a, we just want to take things calmly. And there's different temperaments. And I think when the headhunters really start looking for people, they have to find the right CIO and then the right team. And sometimes people get ahead of themselves. So they've hired a team and maybe you inherit a team, but you have to have the team that trusts the CIO and the CIO that trusts the team. And that has to be a very natural process because when you're facing tough times, if there is any distrust on the team, it's going to really cause bad blood during a climb. Even before you start getting into the implementation and investing, both of these things, investment policy statement and figuring out the team, they don't feel linear in the sense that there's money. You're not waiting to the end of 10 years to get started. So how did these things derail while you're building the boat while you're sailing it? 
So the team and the skills that you need when you're building a portfolio from scratch are different from skills that you need for managing an, a mature portfolio. You might end up having turnover on your team and you just accept that as part of it. And you set up your committee to know that you have to be able to know the skills you need. If you're building from scratch, you need people who love finding new managers. The joy in their life is to meet with seven managers a day, find really one or two, do a ton of due diligence. That gives them joy. If you put a person like that in a mature portfolio, they'll be so sad. In the same way that if you have somebody who is a masterful person at portfolio construction, sizing, portfolio management, and you tell them, go and meet with 1,500 new funds, they'll be miserable. Know where you are in your cycle and hire the people appropriate to them. Okay. So once you have the team in place, once you have some sense of what you're trying to accomplish, what's the next step? Then comes, what are the tools we need in the back? Delegation of authority. Are we going to have a heavy load? Or are we going to have a light load? If you have a delegation of authority that delegates everything to the CIO, which I consider to be a light load. It's much easier to understand what tools you need. If you have delegation of authority that perhaps has much more involvement by the investment committee, then you need to build a system and a process and a framework that satisfies the needs and gives the committee confidence. Because the only way that you're ever going to get up the mountain is with the confidence of the investment committee. All your process and framework should be directed to how does the investment committee gain confidence as we climb this mountain? You pick your tools and then you figure out in your tool bag the role. Am I going to do this direct? Am I going to do it through funds? Am I going to do publics, privates, hedge funds? What asset classes am I going to include? And then you do your asset allocation, which really is creating the map that you and the committee agree with. You can't leave base camp without a plan of action. So the asset allocation then becomes your plan of action. That's where you both agreed you're going to live. And then how much you've been delegated authority is the degrees of freedom to deviate from that plan as you're climbing the mountain. So that all sounds like the basics of sound governance approach. Who's doing what? Who has the authority to implement in what way? That's great. And now you have to actually get into markets and do it. How do you take that analogy further as you're climbing up the mountain? You've done your asset allocation, you've agreed on a plan, and now it's time to construct the portfolio. If you have managers in mind, you can start that that way. If not, you start with index funds and then you find the managers. You start building your private portfolio. It's a process that takes time. Even taking time, we make tons of mistakes. This is an industry where we are guessing the psychology and the probability that a manager will execute a strategy. So there's a lot of psychology, a lot of business risk in the firms, let alone what the markets are doing. Trying to rush the process doesn't really help. What do you do? You create a portfolio. You say, I want this much equity. I want this much private equity, this much venture. These are targets. They're not written down rules. There's rebalancing ranges and your committee might want you to have tight ranges. I have the fortune of having a very wide delegation of authority with very wide ranges because they believe that giving me the freedom to have these wide ranges allows me to survive and really do the tough parts of these climbs. But nonetheless, you understand your constraints and then you figure out how to live within those constraints. And you start figuring out managers, you start figuring out geographies, you start figuring out how much illiquidity did we agree with the committee? Do you have enough public active managers? Are you going to index? Where are you going to spend your time? I would say at the early stages, having really strong public equity and hedge fund expertise is really important. Because that's where most of the assets are going to live. You can dream about getting into venture funds and buyout funds and all of that. But most of your portfolio return is going to be generated by the public part of your portfolio for at least the first seven years. Yeah, got to have chops there. The manager selection in privates is really cool and everybody loves privates and I get that. 
But a lot of people stub their toes by spending so much time on that and really trying to get the expertise there, which is important, but you're not going to see it in your portfolio for the first part of the climb. As you're starting to assimilate that roster, managers, how do you begin thinking about putting it together into that portfolio construction? Portfolio construction is my favorite part of this. Manager selection is great, but portfolio construction is really where it matters. And it really has to do with sizing positions in a way that if the manager does what you think they're going to do, and the opportunity set is as good as you think it's going to be, so let's say it all worked out perfectly, that it actually impacts and generates both beta and alpha for the portfolio. If you size it too small, then even if it does your wildest dream, it's not going to matter. If you size it too big, if you're wrong, and you will be wrong, no one gets them all right, it could actually cripple your ability to deliver to the institution that is counting on that money to do research, to give for developing world, whatever it is, you're going to be cramped on being able to provide that money. So portfolio construction is the art of trying to, in a three-dimensional way, know how to size something while being able to say it's big enough to where if they do it right, it'll matter, but not too big to where if they underwhelm you, it won't hurt that much. And that's the art of portfolio construction. Does that art get attached to a mathematical science when it comes to sizing? You can do it mathematically. You can do the volatility and we model it and we can do all that. But there is a third dimension to that confidence in the probability of execution. We sit there and we're like, okay, in this three-pronged model where I'm thinking, okay, I have about seven different types of risks I'm managing at the same time, none of which can be observed. The only risk that can be observed is volatility, but I'm managing seven other ones. And we've tried to do it with vector math. You can't. That's what experience is. And that's the judgment. And again, I don't always get it right. There are times when I'm like, damn, I wish we would have been a little bit smaller here. Or, wow, I can't believe I didn't lean in when I should have. Doesn't always work. I want to use the Mike Tyson analogy getting punched in the face. But since we're on a mountain, a gale force wind starts knocking you off course. How do you manage the portfolio to anticipate something that you can't anticipate? Whenever you're climbing a technical mountain, and this is through conversations with a lot of these guys I've learned, is you always have to be prepared to be knocked off the mountain. Like You just cannot let your guard down. So everybody's clipped in. Everybody is following protocol. Everybody's following the process. There is no, hey, I just want to sleep in till 10 a.m. kind of thing. No, everybody is on plan because you let everybody else on the team down if you're not on plan. And it can really hurt you. But to your point, I've managed through so many crises and I've managed teams through so many crises, both when I was managing money as well as on this side. The first thing you do when you see the gale force wind coming or you even feel it is you take shelter. You sit with your team and you're like, what is the plan? This is not a time where one guy goes off and says, oh, I think I've got this. No. You have to have a plan that everybody agrees on, or at least they may not agree, but they're willing to follow the leader because then it becomes a game of being open to different ideas. How about if we go through this crevice? How about if we take shelter in this? You start having to adapt the plan on the spot. If you've hired the right team and you respect how each of them thinks, the more people that are contributing to adaptation, the higher the probability you'll survive. There's always an opportunity cost to taking shelter. And I'm curious, how do you balance this all-important task of protection, defensiveness in a portfolio when you think something really bad's going to happen with wanting to be exposed to market forces in every other period of time so that you can compound capital? So we don't market time like that. It's not that I'm sitting there hiding. 
I'm saying when something comes, whether it's 08, whether it's the 97 Asia crisis, the Russian crisis, all of these different crises, when they hit, half the people just stare at screens with their mouths open and are frozen in place. Oh, wait, it was the same way. I'm not saying you're going to pre-position the portfolio. I mean, to an extent you do, but we had a short on mortgages, but it was so small relative to the rest of the portfolio. You have to look at it. And instead of just staring at the screens, you turn off the screens. Let's sit down. Let's have a rational conversation. How do we move forward? In the day after everything shut down with COVID, we did exactly this. We're like, okay, we have no idea how long this is going to last. Where is our exposure in the portfolio in hospitality, airlines, toll roads, every sector affected? So that then I could go back to the investment committee and the board and say, this is how much of the portfolio is exposed. We have no idea where this is going. We also know that our managers are well positioned to take advantage of it. We've got enough money with enough managers to where if there's a great opportunity, they're going to go after it. I have every confidence in that. I don't need to go after it. They already have our money. It's having the confidence that you've got the managers that would take advantage of an opportunity when they saw it so that we don't have to market time. Our job is to make sure that we have a resilient portfolio where we don't need cash. We have enough cash on hand to where if the market shut down, we could still pay grants for the year. It's really basic, but you have to make sure that you can survive to climb the mountain. You can't just be like, oh, hey, yeah, we're down and no, we have no liquidity. That's my job. Your number one job as a CIO is to be able to hand the CFO the cash. Yep. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Any other aspects of the portfolio construction on the mountain before we start talking about manager selection? So I would say it's key and it's a great bridge to manager selection is to separate the opportunity set. Because I think sometimes we pull together manager selection and opportunity set. And I think you have to separate those out between the GP quality, which we can get into with manager selection, and the opportunity set. If you've identified an opportunity that you're really excited about, go figure out that opportunity. Then figure out who can execute the strategy that you have envisioned for that opportunity set. And then you'll be much more focused on your manager selection than if you're just blindly meeting managers. I'm curious when you disaggregate that, because a lot of times opportunity sets come from conversations with managers. It's rare that an opportunity is going to come from a manager that you don't know and that you don't have a lot of confidence in. It's usually existing managers. So if they're talking about an opportunity, then are they going to take advantage of the opportunity? I've been in meetings where they see an opportunity, but it's not in their playpen, let's call it. But they see it. And either A, they're coming to me because they're like, can I widen my aperture and can I go after it? Nope, you have no expertise. But then I can go and hire another manager to do that. Those are rare. I would say more common is one of our managers identifies an opportunity and then they go after it. And we do give them 
for the most part, unless they're crossing massively into unfettered territory and they have no expertise, we give them that leeway and that freedom. You know, sometimes it's, they stub their toe too. The opportunity is great. But again, going back to probability of execution, which is what is the main part of our job, just because we have a high probability that they can execute strategy A under their expertise does not mean they can execute strategy B. All right. I want to turn to the manager's selection as we ascend the mountain. And I thought it'd be fun to start with a quote that you have in your books. This is from John Krakauer, author of Into Thin Air. And here's the quote. When it came time for each of us to assess our own abilities and weigh them against the formidable challenge of the world's highest mountain, it sometimes seemed as though half the population at base camp was clinically delusional. But perhaps that shouldn't have come as a surprise. As you are looking at the landscape of people looking to invest in managers and half of them look clinically delusional, what does that mean to you? I love this quote. And this quote actually was a quote that I had when I was managing money, because let's be honest, the investment world, we have to all be clinically delusional to think that every morning we wake up and we're going to beat the market. Like if you're a public's market person, you wake up every morning thinking, I'm going to beat the market. I'm going to get myself some alpha. It's clinically delusional point. If you're a private person, you're like, I'm going to beat every deal. And if I'm a venture guy, I can identify those legendary companies better than everybody else. Think about the hubris that that is that underpins all of our investment lives. I've always loved this quote. We delude ourselves into thinking we are such sane humans. When I was communicating a lot with the climbers, they're like, well, we all think we're normal. The world thinks we're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Part of what they were talking to me about was the delusion that you can make it up the mountain unless you are so totally obsessed. Because there's a lot of people at base camp that are delusional about the amount of effort that it takes to make it to the top. They think, oh, it can't be that hard. I've got my gear. I'm going to make it up the mountain. And so that was part of that quote. I'm just going to conquer this mountain. It's really not a big deal. What have you seen as places where managers fail? Managers fail to execute on strategy for a number of reasons. So first we'll do the easy one. Managers fail because the opportunity set isn't actually there. So you and the manager miscalculated the opportunity set. Those happen. There could be regulatory oversight. There could be something else that happens. Then there's how does a manager fail to execute? So they fail to execute because something is happening within that firm. You hire them, you do your due diligence on the firm, you think the firm is running on all cylinders. There is so much having worked at three firms that no LP would ever probably unearth, even if they tried. Firms are organic organizations. And no matter how much we think we know, we don't actually know what motivates them. And then you add to that, if one of the main partners has a major life event, a divorce, a death of a close family member, something that really shakes them to their core. Again, because what are you hiring? You're hiring clinically delusional humans (laughs) to manage your money. You got to think that they're armed and ready to go and can withstand anything. If all of a sudden something happens, that's one of the reasons. There's just something there. The other is they just fail to adhere to their process. So if you've bought the process or you've bought that there is no process, no judgment there, everybody has their own way to do it. And all of a sudden, let's say you hire somebody whose process is, I don't think about portfolio construction. I pick stocks. I put them in the portfolio. I have a sell strategy kind of, but whatever. I don't really think about portfolio construction. And then you're three years in and all of a sudden they hire somebody and all of a sudden they become regimented. The ethos of how you hired that manager changed and it's slow and you don't pick it up until you hire a new associate who starts doing diligence on that manager who's like, oh, they have this process. And you're like, what? No, I don't think so. They're (laughs) like, oh yeah, they do. So I've seen managers blow themselves with that one. And then you've got, I mean, it's the reverse of how I 
pick managers, which is people that don't value collaboration, people that don't value partnerships, people that when things get tough, decide that they're lone wolves, people that when things get tough, lack transparency, things like that, that hurt the firm. Because if they're doing it to their LPs, internally, it's not a good place either. And so that tends to be why they underperform. We understand there's times when people's style will not work. If you're a relative value hedge fund in a world of zero rates, it's tough to generate returns. You just got to sit there. If you're a distressed manager and there's no distress, you are going to have a couple slow years. How do you manage your firm? How do you manage the young partners, the young associates, the principals when it's slow? I think we're going to start seeing this in venture and buyout right now and maybe real estate where deal volume is slow. What are they doing all day? How do you manage that as the managing partner? You're going to start seeing that. As you're looking at a roster of managers, the first set of things you talked about So opportunity set going away, significant personal change of the principles, uh, drift from their style. Those are, maybe they're on the extremes, but you identify something is wrong or changed. The style piece feels a lot softer. It's not like they rang a bell and their value stocks are now back. How do you decide when you're on the mountain whether or not to change course? So I do this because we have a concentrated portfolio. I really don't know how people without a concentrated portfolio do this because I don't know where you would find the hours in the day. The amount of time that I spend sitting down with the managing partner and trying to understand their frustrations, trying to understand where they're questioning themselves, trying to understand how they're thinking about changing something in order to fix this, the performance, let's call it trying to figure out why what they think should be working isn't working. And we will do a ton of analysis on their behalf to be like, okay, have you tried looking at it this way? Do you understand how much value you're losing by doing this? You thought you were doing a good thing, but do you understand how much this is costing you? And sometimes it takes eight months, nine months, for us to really diagnose what is going on and how we can be helpful. At the end of the day, we want long-term partnerships. If they're just facing a rough patch, our job for ourselves as well as for our fellow LPs is to help them get back on their feet and feel like they can keep climbing. So to the extent that the managers are delusional in thinking they can outperform it's probably safe to draw the same comparison that the investor in the funds is equally delusional that they can pick the managers. How do you set up your due diligence process to at least try to mitigate some of that delusion? Not only do we start with a list of concerns, we also, thanks to your great guest, Annie Duke, we started adding what we call a kill list. So think of it as a pre-mortem. Pre-identify places where the firm, the manager style may not work. The opportunity set is left aside because it is, like you say, in 90% of the cases, it's really, really soft. So how do we stay on top of that? How do we monitor that? We prep every meeting. We walk into every meeting with, these are the three things we have to walk out knowing to confirm, to validate, and you have to walk out of the meeting and then in the next team meeting, talk about whether that meeting led you to have more conviction, higher probability of them executing on the strategy, lower or unchanged. As you get closer to the summit, what ends up being the most important thing to reach the top of the climb? I would say by the time you're at third camp, you've built your portfolio, you've got your managers, you've got your climbing partners on your team. They're the ones who are really going to take you up the mountain. You have chosen them but they're the ones that are have to get up the mountain or you won't get up the mountain. So I would say the importance of relationships, the closer you get to the summit, the more and more important relationships become. Then it becomes, what is the value that I am bringing to those GPs? This isn't just a transactional relationship. This is a partnership. Their success ensures my success. So how can I be helpful? 
How can I work with them, with their HR teams? How can I work with their younger partners? How do I work with them as they think about their strategy? It's a very high touch model, which is why we run a concentrated portfolio. So in Annie's most recent book, Quit, she leads it off with the great crack hours story and the heroes being the ones who turned back, who never made it to the summit. How do you think about that concept of who turned back and when? There are moments in life where you turn back because you don't have the team that you need and you have to turn back or you have the wrong structure and you have to turn back and try to minimize the damage both to the team and to the portfolio as you turn back. Let's say you're a manager and you see the opportunity set changed. The responsible thing is to take that team to understand that that ascent to the final summit, you have a low probability of success. And the most responsible thing is to lead your team back down the mountain. It's a really hard decision if you have high integrity and care about the organization and the team and the people, it is the best decision for everybody. How do you turn that metaphor into an investment example? You can be leading an emerging market portfolio. You've hired your entire team. You're going to generate so much alpha from emerging market equities and debt. Okay. So that's your mountain that you've chosen to climb as a manager. And all of a sudden the landscape changes. So all of a sudden, you realize that most emerging markets become correlated to China, that you can't actually diversify, that all of a sudden the political situation isn't going to let you, which there's always politics in emerging markets. But the way that you thought you had a skill set to get you up that summit is no longer going to serve you because the environment has changed. So you have to reassess, you have to move back. And be like, okay, if I want to keep doing what I'm doing and I want my team, let's reassess what mountain we're climbing. It's a pragmatic view of I'm not stopping the climb. I just need to reassess what mountain I'm climbing on the allocation side. If you have a committee that really believes that venture is going to generate 10x returns and it's pushing you, but your access to the top venture managers is limited. You have to make sure that you're climbing the right mountain, that you've set the expectation correctly. One of the things that I scratch my head on as I work through your book is the concept that there is a summit in investing. Well, there is a summit in investing in the sense that the summit is when your committee or your clients, if you're a GP, have confidence in your ability to generate returns year after year after year. And that to me is a summit. The confidence of the investment committee and the board to say they are doing this at the top of their game. This is an excellent portfolio year after year after year. Same thing with a GP. The top of the summit is every year you just generate alpha for your clients. That's the summit. That gets back to the concept you started when you're building a portfolio, the team you might have in place could be different, maybe should be different from the ones who are maintaining a portfolio. So in that analogy, maybe the summit is a plateau. It's a high plateau. You want to stay on that plateau. How do you go about deciding when to change the composition of the team so that you can maintain that high level of performance? Somewhere, I would say between third camp and the summit, you start seeing people fray. It's funny because in climbing, you think these are all proportional, base camp to first camp, first camp to second camp. Going from third camp where you've built your portfolio to the summit, you don't do it in two days, I guess is my point. And so you have time to watch how people behave on your team and who is tiring, who is starting to either burn out, who is uninterested in managing relationships as opposed to new things. Who is just so busy with their life that they just can't give it? So you start noticing all of these things because you've built the portfolio, the pace slows a little bit. Yes, you have the re-underwriting case of the fund cycles, but for the most part, the pace slows down. 
at that moment is where you can really see who's comfortable in their shoes. So that's the moment at which you have honest conversations. For the most part, most people know that it's time. And I think this used to be really hard in the old days when we started in the business, or at least when I started in the business, where people stayed in their jobs for 20 years. People don't stay in their jobs that long. They want new adventures. They want new possibilities. Either you can offer them to them on the team, if you really believe they can do it. But for the most part, they'll be like, yeah, okay, now that I've climbed this mountain, I'm ready to go climb a different mountain with a different team. And that is actually supernatural. So if we keep stretching this analogy further, any photos you see these days of Everest are just littered with people. (laughs) And for sure, you want to be climbing your own mountain. But there are other organizations, other institutions that have very, very similar objectives and goals, even if they're not identical. How do you think about the benefits and drawbacks of other expeditions on the same mountain that you're climbing? It's a really important thing. So when you're on the mountain, not only are you watching the behavior of your GPs climbing the mountain, you're also watching other teams. There is a saying in technical mountain climbing about your responsibility and the ethics of your responsibility to help other teams. So if you see somebody climbing and they're going in a different direction that you heard from somebody else is going to cause trouble. It's your responsibility to help them and be like, no, you don't want to do that. If you're going up and they've got a person stuck, even though you're trying to make it to the next turn around the mountain, it's your ethical responsibility to help them out. And I am 100% in that camp. We are here to manage money on behalf of institutions that makes the world a better place, whether it's educational, hospitals, even if it's a family office, eventually they're going to give it to charity, most probably. Our job is to compound charitable wealth. Why wouldn't we help other people on the mountain be safe and do it right? Part of writing this book, it's actually to help people make sure they can stay on the mountain. Because if they can generate 10, 20 basis points per year more of alpha, Think of how much more compounded wealth in the world and could do good in the world. So from a CIO's perspective, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face as you're ascending the mountain? Well, I think one of the biggest things is that there is so much money trying to invest in this endowment model, yet there's only so much capital allocation within these firms, especially the top tier firms. And so in some ways, yes, we love to collaborate with our peers and we do so as much as possible, but we also know that we're involved in sort of hand-to-hand combat fighting for allocations. And in that point of view, then it's about what distinguishes Hewlett from other LPs to become that prized LP. And I think for us, we are a relationship-centric model. Everything is about our relationships with our GPs. How can we be good partners? How can we collaborate? And these are Hewlett principles. We're all about collaboration with partners and we're all about having long-term vision. And so we like to be patient capital with long-term vision, brings in knowledge, brings something to that partnership. We're not just standing around saying, what have you done for me lately? So now that the book is out, what have you found? People are like, well, does this mean that you're ready to retire because you made it to the summit? Back to your summit question. I'm like, (laughs) no, I'm definitely not. I still have a lot of energy and love what I do. So that's usually the first question. Then I've been surprised by GPs who really appreciate understanding how the LP brain thinks. I tell them this is one LP brain. This is not every LP brain, but at least understanding the, the steps and how people get to where they are. Because when they are talking to clients, they themselves, and I remember when it used to happen to me, your clients come in and you're like, everyone thought they hired you for a different part of the elephant. And as a GP, after the clients leave, you're like, is this what the marketing people told them? How did they get to the conclusion that this is what we do? I think every GP has had this moment at some point they're like, oh, okay, now I see that you guys see it from a completely different vantage point. 
one of my GPs came back and they're like, I love the Lego analogy. It's so easy to understand risk premium if you think about it as Legos. I have others who are like, oh my God, the four Ps are so helpful as a start. So it's been good. Obviously, I only hear the positive feedback. Who's going to call me and tell me the negative feedback? No one's going to call and tell me negative feedback. And I don't really do social media. So the haters, they might be out there. I don't know. I want to ask about lessons you've learned from others. You have this concentrated portfolio of close relationships with managers. What are some of the most influential people and lessons you've learned from them? Wow. I used to have a litany of them written on my walls because I think there's everybody from Seth Klarman of just how to do proper valuations and never lose sight that at the end of the day, valuations matter. Lei Zhang, who always has been about quality people and don't ever lower your quality standard. That Those were conversations he and I would have at the very beginning. With Chris Hahn, it's just been relentless enthusiasm, know every single thing, because whatever it is you think you know, it could upend you. So go back and check, triple check, quadruple check, drill, drill, drill. I love this business because it allows us to learn from just such smart people. We get to be surrounded with smart people. Our peers have incredible insights. Our managers have insights. Where else do we get to get smarter every day just by listening to the people around us? All right, Anna, I want to ask you a couple of fun new closing questions since you were on last year. What is one fact that most people don't know about you? That I love to travel, even though I travel for business all the time. When I'm home, I'm dreaming of where am I going on my next vacation, which is completely psycho. I get that. But (laughs) it's who I am. There's just something about exploring new countries that I love. All right. On the last one, what's the best advice you've ever received? The worry basket. I come back to this. It is fundamental to life, people. You can only have so many worries at any given point in time or you break. So think of your worries as a worry basket. And for every new worry, you got to take one out. That is by far the best advice I ever received because it really does clarify what it is you should be worried about and it lets lower priority anxiety go out the window. Well, Anna, thanks for taking us on this journey up the mountain of investment excellence. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited and I hope everybody learned something. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one and see you next time. 